Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of Inside the Hive. It's a very special episode. It's just me at the beginning. I'm Emily Jane Fox. Joe Hagan, my trusted co-host, is actually off on a reporting spree for a story that we can't wait to talk about and I know that we will talk about here on Inside the Hive. This week is even more special because Nick Bilton, our friend, the former host of Inside the Hive, and our, our great buddy is back for a fantastic interview that I know you guys will love. It is with Nick's dear friend, the reporter and author extraordinaire Brad Stone, who is out this week with a earth-shattering book from Simon & Schuster. The book is called Amazon Unbound. It is juicy. It is fun. It is a great read. It is all about the one and only Jeff Bezos and Amazon and the company he built and the scandals he's weathered. It is really a fun read, and the interview gets into all of the nitty-gritty things, words that I, as a lady, cannot even say, so I will leave it to to Nick to say the dirty words. I know you guys will love this episode, and Joe and I will be back next week. We will miss Nick, but we are so grateful for him stepping in, and we're so grateful for Brad Stone taking the time to stop by and tell us all about his book. So we will see you right back here next week after you listen to this great episode. America has a problem, one that is uniquely ours. On the new season of Long Shadow, I delve into the complicated history of firearms from the Second Amendment to the AR-15. I try to make sense of how we got here and how we might find a path forward. From Longlead, PRX, and Campside Media, in collaboration with The Trace, I'm Garrett Graff, and this is Long Shadow in Guns We Trust. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? Is it bursting with energy or drained? How do you recharge it? Have you ever reflected on those questions? Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Hive today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Hive. 
Brad, welcome back to uh, Inside the Hive. It's so exciting to have you on. Thank you, Nick. Um, so I have um, I have a, a, a question. We're going to just kind of start where, you know, where I think we should start, which is that um, let's talk about the dick pic, because that's really all <laughs> anyone gives a shit about. Is Nick, I'm a, I'm a writer of business books. I would never stoop to such a level. Uh, it is a full chapter in the book, which I <laughs> uh, inhaled. Everyone knows about this, this supposed dick pic, but the, the most shocking thing that I learned from reading your book was not about the fact that this guy started this multi-trillion dollar company that, that you know, you can buy everything from, but there, that there may not have even been a dick pic. But I want to begin by kind of rewinding a little bit and talking about how Jeff Bezos went from being a family man that, uh, you know, had these two kids, four kids, sorry, four, uh, uh, four kids, was tw- 25 years married, right, to Mackenzie, um, and how it all fell apart. And and I, I want to hear the story because it's just, it's crazy. So go, sure. take let's, us there. Let, let's start there and I'll put it in personal terms. So I'm writing this book about Amazon's last 10 years and I start in, in late 2017. And Nick, you might remember I came to LA a couple of times and crashed in your, in your guest pad as I was writing, reporting the Hollywood aspects of it. And in, in the fall of 2018, um, he starts Jeff Bezos basically starts, you know, appearing in public with Lauren Sanchez. And the unique and interesting thing about that was that they were both technically married to other people. And of course, the world didn't know anything about that relationship. And then in early 2019, Bezos stuns the world and many of the people who are close to him by tweeting the news of his divorce to his, his, his uh, you know, wife, Mackenzie, now Mackenzie Scott. And the next day, the the most remarkable and astonishing thing, the National Enquirer, the tabloid newspaper that has been seemingly, you know, uh, relegated to the to the dustbin of the modern media world, has this amazing scoop that you know this relationship is happening. It, they have pictures, they have text messages, sexting between the two, and this is the most disciplined guy in the world. And so, obviously, as folks remember, it is a huge media circus. So you in the book talk about how you kind of go through the the um, you go through incredible reporting about how it all came out. And it turns out it was that Lauren Sanchez's brother, um, Michael Sanchez, had leaked it to the Inquirer and was kind of playing both sides of the field. And I mean, it really does make for like a sleuthy novel here, you know, Gavin de Becker, the investigator and the billionaire and, and so on and so forth. Talk specifically about how you kind of broke down the story, how you did the reporting, and how you actually figured out something that only really I believe that the FBI was able to figure out uh, in addition, that the compromising photo of uh, Jeff Bezos's uh, penis, for want of a better description, wasn't wasn't actually real. And Michael Sanchez had taken it from some website and uh, but it could have been real. Kind of tell us tell us about that. Right. Well, we, we have to go back to the media circus of 2019 and recall that there was kind of a fog of ambiguity around the whole thing. Bezos in his in the Medium Post was saying, um, accusing the Inquirer of maybe having political motives. And of course, the Inquirer parent company, AMI, 
you know, has been, was in league with Trump and was accused of catch and kill for Trump's affairs. And then there was the accusation that maybe MBS, the, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, had hacked Bezos's phone. And, and to be clear, like a lot of these things are independently possibly true. Like it's possible that the Saudis hacked Bezos's phone. Um, there's just no evidence that any information was passed on to the uh, inquirer. And it's true that AMI did have a relationship with Michael Cohen and Trump World. It's just not clear that there were any political motives to its reporting beyond embarrassing, you know, the world's wealthiest person and revealing, you know, this this uh, this relationship. Now you asked how I how I untangled it, and part of, partly because there's still like cross currents of lawsuits going on. You know, I have to be careful, and people yeah, spoke yeah, of off, the, off the yeah. record. But basically, I tried to hew as closely as I could to the FBI's investigation. They they took up Bezos's accusations of extortion, and to the examination by prosecutors in the Southern District of New York. And you know, you can divine it's this meaning, but they dropped the case. They didn't see a grand conspiracy, or at least they didn't bring charges. And so that was basically how I did it by looking at the court files, the testimony, talking to as many people as I could off the record. Everyone was recording their conversations and weaving grand conspiracies. And basically what it came down to was, you know, Michael Sanchez, um, you know, getting paid to deliver the scoop to the Inquirer. He thought he had his sister's interests at heart, or at least he said he did. He played both sides. And then, you know, it was very convenient uh, for Bezos and his representatives to go and wrap themselves up in the mantle of the Washington Post and to, you know, to imply that there were this was part of a political conspiracy. I don't know if they were being disingenuous. There there were a lot of reasons to maybe think that it was political uh, in nature. I mean, Michael Sanchez is a conservative. The Saudis did hate the Washington Post and did ha- hate Bezos. So, you almost have to go back to the weird, wily world of Trump in 2019, you know, and put yourself in that mindset to understand everyone's motivation in this bizarre, peculiar uh, uh, tabloid scandal. When this all comes out, is Bezos embarrassed by it? I mean, if I, I, I don't send dick pics, but if I did, I would, you know, and it came, one got out, I would probably dig a hole and go and live in it for, for the rest <laughs> of my life. Like, you know, but for him, like as a billionaire who is under scrutiny, uh, you know, I mean, there must be thousands of articles written a day about him and his company and all the things he's done right and wrong and this, that, and the other. Is it like you sending a tweet with like a grammatical error? You're like, eh, all right, on what's like, what, what, what is it like for someone like him to be, thrust into the public eye in this regard. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, when I send a tweet with a grammatical error, which is often, I'm I'm horrified and I do, <laughs> you know, and I do self-immolate instantly. But I don't send tweets anymore. So exactly. You know. But maybe yeah. that's the difference, right? Like these these sort of pieces of human nature, um, embarrassment, um, you know, maybe empathy, um, well, I, I'm not going to say that Bezos lacks them, but like obviously he has a really high tolerance for embarrassment. And that allowed him, you know, it allows him to be a public figure and to make these risky bets and put himself out there even when he might fall flat on his face. And it allowed him to call out the National Enquirer on these extortive emails, you know, when they were asking the Bezos camp to drop uh, charges of you know, political motives to the Inquirer story. This was a time when AMI, you know, was ha- had an agreement with the Southern District of New York and they couldn't get into trouble again. So they were really sensitive. 
And Bezos just threw it out there, right? He, did, he didn't care. So maybe he is sort of immune from the kind of normal embarrassment and vulnerability that you or I might feel if we get into one of these situations. I'm not going to say he wasn't embarrassed. I have a scene in the book where he goes into a meeting of other Amazon executives and he kind of quasi apologizes for the whole thing. But then he remarkably is able to kind of spin around on a dime and focus on like the matter at hand, like the finances of the company. So you know, he's operating at a different altitude than than us and from probably most normal people. When you look at the company, Amazon, and you've been covering it for how many years have you been covering Amazon for now? 15 years? I think that the first time I went, it's more like 20, sadly, but oh, wow. Stephen Levy and I went to Amazon's headquarters in I think about 2000 or 2001 to talk to Bezos about the dot-com dot bust and how Amazon was going to go out of business. And that was, uh, I w we were at Newsweek at the time, and that was my first visit. So 20 years ago. If you'd have gone there and instead of buying gas for your car at that point, bought stock at Amazon, you would not be talking to me right now. I could have retired happily, but unfortunately, <laughs> I did not do that. So as someone who's been covering him and the company for so long, it seems like, you know, when I've read your books and your articles and written articles with you when we were at the Times together, it seems like you're as shocked as anyone that the company has become what it has become today. Do you think that Jeff has that same kind of feeling that he, you know, looks at Amazon and thinks, oh, wow, this look how look at this thing that I built. Or does he think like, oh, this thing is not big enough yet. It's not hmm. it's not what I imagined it to be. It's not it hasn't touched the, the you know, the, enough people. It doesn't get packages in 30 minutes. It gets them in 31 minutes. It You know, I mean, one thing that I get from the book, which I I didn't know and I found fascinating was just how involved he is in every single aspect of the business. I mean, you can look at other CEOs that run companies. I mean, Jack Dorsey's barely involved in most of his businesses and, and you know, and someone like Satya is involved on a very high level at, at, at Microsoft. And, but Jeff just seems like he's in, he's in the weeds, he's on the top, he's, he's everywhere. What do you think he kind of thinks when he looks at, or what do you, what are your thoughts as far as from covering him? Um, when he looks at the business and what it is today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first I was going to maybe uh, disagree with the premise of your question, but I actually think you're right in terms of like my surprise at what Amazon's become. I think if you had asked anyone, um, you know, two years ago, could this be a $1.6 trillion company with, you know, 1.3 million employees, that would be astonishing. And it was because Amazon, you know, was injected with a, a dose of steroids during the pandemic. But you know, to answer your question, like Jeff, it, he really doesn't micromanage everything. He he floats at a high altitude. He he gets deep on the new stuff, and then he floats at a high altitude, and he'll kind of appear, um, you know, without warning in a business, either with an email, you know, with a question mark email, forwarding a customer complaint, or like diving deep into their documents. And he appears without warning, and he kind of audits these different businesses, and he gets everybody kind of scrambling in panic. So, you know, that has been his methodology over the past couple of years, even when he's been started doing other stuff. And, to, you know, to the question of like, is he satisfied? No, I mean, I think like, this is just in his weird, peculiar nature, um, you know, but also a kind of analytical take on the fact that, you know, a company and particularly a retailer that stops moving forward 
you know, will end up kind of getting disrupted itself. And he talks about he's got this whole thing with day two companies and day two is stagnation and death. And uh, he just like, you know, his recipe is keep trying new things and pushing people forward. And, you know, and then and then, you know, the the uh, result of that is like is continued growth and domination. Um, but, uh, you know, it'll be interesting because he is stepping aside. And so we don't know if like if, if he'll continue to like send the emails audit the the documents and basically make a sort of nuisance out of himself and, you know, a disruption into his employees' lives every couple of months or years uh, as he's done in the past. You know, he might recede from view a little bit. We'll see. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now. talk about these moments in the book that sit with me after a week after or so after reading them still thinking about it uh, and they're usually the ones around the fulfillment center and uh, or you know and the employees and the way jeff uh decided to do one thing or another and an example is um there was a fulfillment center where people were fainting from doing uh you know working in these high heats in the midwest and uh, and the the head of the fulfillment center said he wanted to put air conditioning units on the roof to you know, and Jeff said absolutely no way. And it wasn't until there was a barrage of negative press about what was happening, uh, where there was ambulances just lined up outside to take people for um, who had fainted from from working, that he acquiesced and did it. And also this way that uh, he set up the system where. He didn't want to give people promotions after three years in the warehouses because he felt it could lead to stagnation and to mm-hmm, you know right. and to, to um, uh, creating unions and so on and so forth. You know, there's smart business decisions in all of these things, but there are maybe not kind human decisions. Right. Um, and I'm curious: Do you have any insight in your own personal point of view, or or from or from more importantly from from the employees that have worked for him for so long on an executive level of, of is this just a part of the culture of like, we've got to make the business better and faster and quicker, or is there, are there people who think like maybe these decisions aren't, aren't right. They're not kind. They're not, you know, they're not necessarily the, the human way that we should be moving forward. Right. I mean, some of them are just plain mistakes, right? The fact that it back in way back in 2000, Oh God, I think 2012 Bezos, rejected uh, an initiative to put air conditioners in the Midwestern FCs during the summer, and then it blew up on him. And then he, you know, he kind of yelled at the people for not convincing him. You know, that was just an error. And, you know, and Amazon makes mistakes and Bezos makes mistakes. Um, But I think what you're kind of describing is, is, you know, a sort of lack of empathy, right? And Mm -hmm. the, the idea that he has architected the fulfillment center network so that employees stop getting raises after three years. He wants them to move in and then move out or move up in the organization or move out. Um, he, he sees, he looks coldly and with, with, uh, calculation at say the, the large automakers, you know, who have a unionized and entrenched 
workforce that strikes every couple of years. And, and that has, you know, made the automakers move very slowly, you know, he might argue or they might argue, and disruptions from Tesla, which doesn't have a unionized workforce, or international automakers. And, you know, he looks at it and he goes, um, how can we avoid that? You know, how can work? You know, Amazon, unlike other tech companies, is going to have a million workers in the fulfillment centers. What can they do to avoid problems later on? And and also, what can they do to run those profitably and efficiently? And so what you see is like these systems where the robots are kind of the masters, you know, algorithms, rate and employees effectiveness. If they slow down or they miss their targets, they get they get a performance improvement, uh, you know, initiative. Um, maybe they get fired. And yeah, all this stuff lacks empathy. It's often, but it's often like a sort of, you know, evil genius kind of machinery that he's put into place. And you know, we've been talking like, you know, are there, are there little kind of human nature things that have allowed him to be successful, but that he lacks? And maybe empathy is one of them, right? And we are looking at the, you know, the situation in the fulfillment centers. You know, a lot of people are are obviously thankful to have those jobs. And Amazon has uh, sometimes kind of grudgingly responded to the criticisms and raised the wages and offered new perks for employees. But you know, they're, they're difficult places to work and, and it's all because Bezos has this master plan. So what is, it's so, so Jassy who took over, well, who's taking over as CEO right now has mm-hmm. run AWS for, 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 I don't know how, how long has he been? Oh God, him? it was about, I think around 2004, he took it. Wow, he took it crazy. Over. So he, you know, he's dealt with a different, uh, different clientele. Like his employees are, you know, largely, engineers who get right. paid large salaries and and sit in air conditioned cubicles and as he takes over this fulfillment center kind of you know the system that is going to continue to grow as you said when we were speaking earlier that um you know amazon just took out a, a few billion dollar bond so that they can build even more fulfillment centers right you think he is going to take you know he seems like a he he doesn't seem as ruthless uh, and calculated as Bezos is as a CEO, and I don't say that in a negative. I just say as someone who was driven to see the the company grow at an exponential rate. But um, do you think that Jesse is going to take a different approach mm-hmm. to these problems, or a more human approach, or is it time will tell? Yeah, I think probably a little bit more human, a little, a little bit more empathetic. I mean, Jesse, Andy Jesse. You know, he certainly likes to. Um, um, I'll say that, yeah, he 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 likes to, you know, represent himself as a, you know, a, an advocate of diversity for diversity, um, you know, and and um, and a little, little more empathy. Although, you know, AWS has been a pretty tough place to work. Also, he's got his own devilish creations in terms of the meetings and the review processes. And that can be hard for someone who comes to a meeting unprepared or who can't answer the right questions. But I mean, I, I think Jassy's a l- little bit more of a humbler person. I think he's a sort of more well-rounded executive. But of course, he's not an innovator. He's not a visionary. He's not a technologist uh, or an inventor in the way that Bezos is. So it's a real different look uh, for the CEO of Amazon. And the difference is that Bezos says he's not going anywhere, right? He's going to be executive chairman. So maybe the two of them, you get the full the full set of tools or the full set of skills. Um, but yeah, I think, I think probably um, Jassy will kind of try to make an impact right off the bat. 
um, in, in showing a little bit of a different look for Amazon and, and for the CEO. When you look at what's next for Bezos, um, you know, he is eternally tied to Amazon. You say you think his name, you think Amazon, you think Amazon, you think Bezos's name. Do you think he will step back or do you mm-hmm. think that he'll be he'll be really involved still as executive chairman, you know, in the minute details? I mean, in your book, I, you know, again, I found it fascinating just how how into the weeds he gets, you know, with yeah. Amazon Studios. And, um, you know, it's just it's I, I didn't know any of that. And um, and even if he is, you know, moving on to to do more philanthropic things now mm-hmm. and focus on Blue Horizon, his spaceship company and this, that and the other. Do you think he's going to be able to walk away yeah. or – yeah, it's 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 like it is the critical question, and um, I, I think in the short term, probably, you know, he he doesn't go far. I mean, he says he wants to continue to work on new things. You know, will I think he'll continue to be the loudest voice in the in the conference room, so to speak. Um, you know, for the big meetings, for the strategic decisions, for the acquisitions. But over time, I do think there's there's a a case to be made that he does drift away. And, you know, the, the super yacht will be completed. Um, I write about that in the book for the first time. The philanthropy is going to have to spend more time with that if he wants to make a meaningful impact. Blue Origin, the space company, is really lagging behind SpaceX and the accomplishments of Elon Musk. That needs his his kind of care and feeding. And so I do think over the next couple of years, we might see him drift away. But for the short term, oh, he'll probably, you know, Andy Jassy will feel Bezos's gaze over his shoulder. Um, and, and that'll probably be to his benefit, right? Uh, but I do think it'll be a gradual process. When you look at the uh, Bezos's involvement in the Washington Post, um, I I found it really interesting how involved he is, and as someone who covered him for many years, and and do you feel like his understanding of the importance of journalism has changed since buying the Washington mm-hmm. Post? You know, I mean, he I think that a lot of this is not a Bezos thing, really. You know, Jobs, Gates, all these guys they had a they had a a a, a, a kind of not a disrespect for journalists, but it, it was all, it was more that we were like tools for them to, to wield in the direction that they needed, <laughs> you know, well and, yeah. and, you know, you, you, you know, you got invited to Apple headquarters and you got a briefing and you wrote a story and yeah. that was because it was Apple and it was jobs and, and so on. It feels like, you know, Bezos has been very involved in in the Washington Post. He had these biweekly meetings. He had, um, you know, when there was the the journalist that had been imprisoned in Iran, he helped get him out. He, you know, was really involved in all the MBS stuff. Um, do you think his viewpoint on journalism has changed, and he's mm-hmm. he's kind of grown more respectful of it? Or well, it certainly hasn't made him more available to be interviewed by journalists. <laughs> <laughs> so in that respect, um, it hasn't changed. He's still very guarded. He's very private. When he does interviews, it tends to be with his peers or a, some sort of friendly interviewer. The, the last time I saw him be interviewed on stage, it was a junior female employee at Amazon. Um, you know, that was not a revealing interview. He was interviewed by the billionaire David Rubenstein, he was interviewed by his brother at, at an L.A. event recently. Well, a couple of years ago, that's you know, you're not going to get hard questions there, although it's tremendous fun to watch. Um, but, yeah, I do think probably owning the post gave him an appreciation for the role of 
of important media institutions for our society, in our society. And he saw firsthand how the Post is kind of the bulwark of truth against, uh, you know, the, the lies and manipulations of political figures like Donald Trump, right? And he saw that firsthand and, you know, he professed admiration for it. He invested his own time and effort in in saving the Post. And yeah, I do think there's an appreciation. I wish it translated into uh, a change in attitude at Amazon, but that it has, has not done. Um, when you look forward to to Bezos now, so he's he's retiring, not retiring, he's stepping down from Amazon uh, at, at, at the third quarter, I believe. Is that right? The end of the yeah. Summer, so later, later this summer, quarter, later this summer, he has been talking for years about about Blue Origin, his spaceship company, and how yeah. this is going to be his legacy, and so on and so forth. I I was at an event um, in Los Angeles with him a couple of years ago, and he was being interviewed. Um, and he said that he said, you know, I'm going to, I'm literally willing to put all of my billions into this because I think it's going to save humanity. And yet Blue Origin has not done so well. It's been, it's been a bit of a disaster, quite frankly. Um, and you talk a lot about how it started in the book and how Jeff has made efforts to try to fix it. But uh, he feels to me like he's breaking a little bit more. What is the future of that spaceship company and his involvement? Do you yeah. think that it's, you know, is he going to focus on it exclusively now? Is he going to, uh, you know, he's he, this is someone who I imagine doesn't like to lose, even though he makes, you know, uh, self-deprecating jokes about the fire phone and things like that. He he also, you know, this is a big thing to talk about and then to see fail. Right. Well, and I think fail is too strong a word right now. Um, maybe well, straggle. Yeah, straggle a little bit, but they say they're going to start bringing tourists to uh, to suborbital space, selling tickets on this spaceship called New Shepard sometime this summer. Um, that is the culmination of 15 years of work. But the problem is that you know SpaceX is this conspicuous example of you know of a of a very successful orbital rocket company you know where the government is paying SpaceX to go to the space station to develop plans to go to the moon and maybe one day go to Mars and so basically what happened was very early on Bezos thought he could move very slowly and constrain his investment in Blue Origin and then SpaceX came and kind of changed the game. And Jeff, as you say, is competitive. He, he started kind of increasing his ambitions for Blue Origin, his investment in Blue Origin, and it created a, a, just a lot of dysfunction there. And I do think – I don't think he wants to spend all his time there. I think he's, he's hired a professional CEO, a guy named Bob Smith from, uh, from Honeywell. So he wants it to run independently, but it kind of keeps veering on off course and – who knows? He might have to come in. He might have to take over there for a short period of time. If if they don't start showing results, I could see him looking for a, a new CEO again. But um, I think he's impatient with it. And you know, considering that he's selling a billion dollars or more worth of Amazon stock, it's not surprising that he wants to see results there. So that'll be an interesting one to watch. When you uh, have been covering him for, for all these years, I still can't tell from reading your books and and talking to you and so on if you like the guy or mm. if you or if you don't you know and I know look I know you got to say I'm a journalist I don't have opinions but like <laughs> let's put the bs aside for a second here you know like I remember talking to Walter Isaacson about the Steve Jobs book and it was very apparent in the book that that Walter thought that Steve and a lot of people around Steve thought that he was a jerk and yeah. and uh and Walter was pretty 
pretty public about that. And I think, you know, Lorraine Jobs hates him as a result and some people don't talk to him and so on. But I think, you know, it it came through and I don't think Walter was able to hide it. I think for you, you're able to kind of compartmentalize it a little bit more. And, but, but I do wonder like, what are your feelings on Mm -hmm. this person that you have covered for 20 years? Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, I, it's hard. Maybe the reason why I'm, um, a little um, unrevealing about it is because I'm I'm so conflicted about it. Like yeah. it's hard to disassociate my personal feelings from my feelings as a journalist that this is like a fascinating target, right? A, a completely complex, fascinating individual who is secretive and who has built this incredible empire that affects all our life. And that just presents such a rich, <laughs> constantly rewarding reporting target. Um, on a personal level, I, it's not really even something that I contemplate that much. I mean, maybe I feel a little bit, I would, with Walter and remembering, uh, his book about Steve Jobs, my recollection is that he felt that he was a flawed human, but he really admired Jobs, the innovator, uh, and the creator. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, you know, that's maybe, accurate. Yeah. Maybe yeah. I would sort of feel the same way. Like Bezos, you know, definite admiration for what he has built. I am a Prime member. I am an Alexa owner. I had to mute the damn thing before this talk so it wouldn't start <laughs> chirping in. Um, you know, I've watched the movies and the TV shows. And I, I would have to say that Amazon, unlike, uh, let's say, some social networks, gives me back time. It doesn't take time away. And mm. I, I appreciate that a lot um, because, you know, like everyone else, I have a busy life. And yet Bezos is flawed and, and he's a human, right? And he's flawed in the way a lot of people are flawed. And that, you know, makes it him interesting. I certainly am not going to condemn him for like that complexity because maybe I'm just sort of non non-judgmental, but you know, but I can also be critical because I do think that when we've talked about this, he's he's kind of architected some systems in the fulfillment center on the Amazon marketplace. Amazon's relationship with other companies that tend to lack empathy and tend to allow Amazon to accrue some worrisome power. So, you know, good, good and bad and lots of reasons for regulators to come in and look at Amazon and Bezos. Um, And then I'll just say that, like, you know, the accumulation of extraordinary wealth at a time of, you know, widening Mm. income inequality is something is is obviously in this day and age, um, you know, is it's let's call it a bad look. <laughs> a bad look is a is a great way of uh, a great way of putting it. I mean, but you know what's interesting is when you hear him talk about it, and you hear some of these other billionaires talk about it. They have this belief that look, look how successful I was at building this business that gave me these billions of dollars. I'm going to do the same for humanity and. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's tough to argue that, you know, that maybe they will, maybe they won't. And and uh, but it's also tough to point out that, you know, I, I think that's like some crazy new statistic out from Oxfam where the richest four four people on the earth uh, have the same amount of wealth. And this includes Bezos is in those four people have the same amount of wealth as the poorest uh, four billion or something yeah. like that. It's just yeah. it's just astounding. Right. It's preposterous. Uh, and obviously part of it starts with kind of updating, you know, tax tax law. And it's not like any of these billionaires do illegal things, right? They're very clever at debating taxes and and doing what they need to do. But um, you know, our governments um, have allowed have allowed it to happen. When you're covering this company 
um, you know, I was, I was on the website earlier on Amazon and I scrolled down to looking for something and I found myself at the bottom of the webpage mm-hmm. and it's got the list of all of its businesses and it's, it's just astounding. I mean, it's Kindle and Woot and Audible and Amazon Music and, and Prime and 6PM and ACX and I, it just goes on and on and on. Blink, you know, Ring, Aero. Yeah. How did you decide what to cover and what mm-hmm. not to cover in in this this book that chronicled the, this company over the last you know twenty years? Yeah, yeah. No, it's a great question, and it, it's it's like the big author's challenge. And Nick, we've talked about this and when we've discussed our books, but you always want to find the straight line. When we've lamented books. Yeah, not right. We, you always want to find that, that chronology that will bring readers through um, a complicated story. And at the same time, keeping your main characters, in this case, Jeff Bezos, really in, in sight. And I not only had all the Amazon businesses, but I had the Washington Post and Blue Origin mm. and the personal scandal and Trump and, and the pandemic. And so it was basically the process of like talking to hundreds of people, creating the chronology, figuring out where everything fit, and then and then basically making a conscious decision to not go down some avenues. Uh, for example, you know the ring the ring doorbell uh, company that he acquired, which you know creates all sorts of really legitimate privacy issues. I largely didn't touch on that in the book because I didn't have a substantive story, you know, in it. Um, I, Bezos really wasn't front and center, at least in the reporting that I had. So I, I kind of put it on the cutting room floor, and that's it. It's sort of like deciding, you know, what your what what doesn't fit into your story, um, and kind of keeping keeping the straight line and keeping the main character in focus. Hmm. Um, all right. So last question before we let you go. Uh, when you look into the future, into your crystal ball 20 years from now, where is Amazon? Mm-hmm. Where is Jeff Bezos? What are these? What is this? Is this company, you know, I think it's what? It's a $1.7 trillion today. Like, is it a, a $40 trillion company? Like, is it a, you know, is, is Bezos retired? And is he, you know, a movie star on, you know, for Amazon Studios? Like in the He's next- He's living on Mars. And living Elon, on Mars. And Elon's also living on Mars. <laughs> and they're and neighbors they, and they hate each other. They each own half the planet and they're at war. Uh, <laughs> and Amazon uh, robots um, have enslaved the Earthling population. <laughs> this is, you know, the sad thing is you could, this actually could be, uh, could be accurate. I mean, if anyone, if any movie producers have heard that, Nick and I will write that script. Um, <laughs> we will, we will produce that movie. Um, okay. Well, let me answer your question. Um, in 20 years from now, I mean, caveating that as we've, as we've said previously, you know, if either one of us had invested in Amazon 20 years ago, we'd be rich and we didn't have the foresight to do that. So we really can't be counted on. Predict- <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and you know, the other sad thing is I was looking today for an email about something and I was like, oh, I ended up back and like, I didn't realize my emails go back to like 2007. And I was like, let me see when the fir- I got the first Bitcoin email from someone. Uh-uh. And it was like late 2010. And I'm thinking to myself, like, Jesus, if I would have only read that email. Exactly. I wouldn't be talking to Brad Stone today. No, I know. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe you're Satoshi, Nick. Um, yeah, I, I, I wish. Okay, well, in 20 years, you know, the the arc of kind of h- corporate history is for companies to rise and fall and to get so big that kind of gravity pulls them down, bureaucracy and, you know, turnover in the executive ranks. In 20 years, Bezos probably is, m- has moved on to other things. 
And so, you know, I think an easy prediction to make is that in 20 years, Amazon's still a juggernaut, but it has a lot of competition. Investors have cooled on it. Um, you know, it finds oh, it so difficult. You, you don't think that it, there's a world in 20 years where that list of companies that it owns and operates and is even is double or triple? You think it's it's? Well, I think Amazon's still huge and still exerts a dominant force. But and and the reason I called the book Amazon Unbound is because so far it has been kind of unbound from the rules of gravity. But mm. you know, you see the last year just the turnover of the senior executives. I mean, eventually, I do think this is the Amazon's big challenge going forward to kind of continue to fight to be distinctive and, um, you know, to keep releasing new things. And you look at the leadership team now and Bezos says he's going to stick around. But without him, is the is there an innovator there? Is there someone who can, you know, write an email which defines Alexa in 2010 and then sketch it out in the whiteboard, as I describe him doing in the book? And I don't think without Bezos, there is. And that is you know, for every tech company, you know, they have to keep reinventing themselves. So, you know, the great challenge for Amazon is to avoid this prediction, which is that in 20 years, they're still a dominant force, but they're kind of getting henpecked by by smaller, nimbler companies that are run by the Jeff Bezoses of the future. And, um, you know, my uh, my prediction is that they'll have a hard time with that. But, um, you know, in 20 years, um, who knows, we could all be living in one great big Amazon fulfillment center. And, and I'll <laughs> I'll call you up in retirement and I'll tell you, God, um, can we delete this podcast already? I was really incorrect. You were really, really incorrect. Um, where's Jeff Bezos? Is he, is he, you know, doing philanthropy? Is he, do you think he's, you know, genuinely got his rocket company to a place that it's, it is his biggest legacy is, or is he, you know, saving journalistic empires like the Post or... What do you think? Yeah. Okay. So in, in 20 years, he is in his late 70s. Um, I would say, again, just wild prediction. Um, he's gone to space and um, he's kind of fulfilled that lifelong dream. And um, he maybe he's spending most of his time with the rocket company. And um, um, and he's a philanthropist. And and look, let's end it on an optimistic note. The fact that Jeff Bezos, one of the greatest minds of, of our generation, is about to start applying himself in a real way to the challenge of climate change is a, a reason for hope. And I quote him in the book talking about how he's optimistic that we can stop climate change. So if he's able to make a real impact, then he'll be a celebrated figure, even despite the criticisms of the company and its its business practices. And we can only hope, right, that that the Bezos Earth Fund and Mackenzie Bezos and her philanthropy, Mackenzie Scott, excuse me, you know, are able to like make an, a significant impact. That would be a great legacy of the Amazon fortune to have gone back into fighting climate change and to have made an impact. Brad, this has been a fascinating conversation. I could go for another 40 minutes, uh, but I know you've got a lot of interviews lined up. So thank you so much. The book is Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire by Brad Stone. Brad, thank you so much for taking the time today. Nick, it is always a pleasure. Thank you very much. course to Nick Milton for stepping in this week and our guest Brad Stone. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive. You can find those on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to our great producer, Brett Fuchs, and of course, the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work as well. 
And of course, a big thank you to our sponsors. Please be sure to support them any way you support this podcast. We will see you right here next week. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And the law was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f*** themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden starting March 19th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts.